You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. All right, folks, listen, a quick reminder about our upcoming class, Putting the Pieces Together After Deconstruction, led by yours truly, meaning both me and Jared. Right. Yeah, how do you say yours truly plural? Yours, I don't. Your, your, well, your y'all's true. Yours. The true. thing is that English is an impoverished language because the second person is the same form, singular, right. plural. That's which true. Which is just a bunch of BS. Yeah. It's a stupid language. So we have to say y'all. Okay. As always, this class is live for one night only, which will be February twentieth. So put it on your calendar, February twentieth, from eight to nine thirty p.m. Eastern time. And guess what? It's pay what you can. Until the class ends, and then it costs 25 bucks. Exactly. So, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash deconstruction for more information and to sign up. We hope to see you there. And if you want access to all our classes, past, present, and future, plus exclusive Q&A for each class, you can get an all-access pass for $12 a month. How? Glad you asked. By joining our amazing community, Society of Normal People, at thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Faith for Normal People. We have had one episode with just you and I, but today... Which doesn't count. It doesn't count. Today counts Yeah, as the inaugural episode of Faith for Normal People. Right. And our topic today is finding a curious faith. And our guests are Rhett and Jesse McLaughlin, who were just wonderful. Rhett and Jesse uh, met at a church in 98. They've been married for 21 years. And if you have been around the internet, you probably know about Rhett and his lifelong best friend Link from their YouTube show, Good Mythical Morning, which has garnered over 18 million followers. During the rise of Rhett's internet fame, of course, Jesse took the less glamorous but more godly route (laughs) of homeschooling their kids for eight years. That's angelic, eight years. That's, That's a, a long, long time. time. Yeah, homeschool kids. Um, and is now an interior decorator working in both residential and commercial design. But this year, importantly, Rhett released his first solo album, Human Overboard. Which is awesome. Yeah. Under the artist's name James and the Shame, it's chronicling his journey out of evangelicalism. And uh, Jesse actually sings on some of those tracks, which highlight the evolving story of their love through shifting faith, which is what we have them on to talk about today. That's right. Yeah. So we had a great time talking about this stuff and let's get into it. Yeah. And don't forget, don't forget to stay tuned because at the end of the interview, now for Faith for Normal People, we have a special segment mm-hmm. where Pete and I have a chance to reflect on the episode and talk a little bit more personally about it. Called Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. All right, let's dive in. The initial feelings were abject terror, desperation, anger. I would lay on the bed and cry to God and ask God where he was and why he had abandoned us. This fear of the unknown and what our relationship would turn into apart from a commitment to Christ turned into this, what do we have? And then we started realizing that we had a commitment to each other. Well, welcome both of you to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having us. You are excited to be here. Am I right in assuming this is the inaugural episode of Faith for Normal People? That's exactly right. Yeah. We we know. tried to get some other people who just were busy. <laughs> Listen, I, I was about to say we're honored, but no, yeah. no more. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's like okay, because I feel like there's a you're assuming a, a couple of things about us. You're assuming that we we we're normal. And that we have faith. <laughs> and so, I don't know. I mean, l- let's That's see weird. how this unfolds. The mystery has been placed before us. Yes. Okay. Well. Let's see. Well, so we, I mean, it, we really wanted to bring you on to talk about how the faith shifts have impacted your marriage, your parenting, and how you've walked through that, how you've changed through that. But to set us up, maybe a little context on what did your faith look like as a kid and in early adulthood And then we can kind of talk about those shifts. Well, I grew up in a an evangelical context for sure in the South and North Carolina, where we're both from. And I was a sensitive, creative kid who was going to please. And that was like the most important thing to me. So, you know, if I'm put in this context of there is a God that sent his son to die for your sins, and this is the only way 
to not go to hell, but also to be loved. I'm going to do that real well. So I did that whole uh, Christian thing pretty well. You know, I, as an adult, was diagnosed with OCD. So I think about it now, one of the most relatable scenes, I think, for me in Inside Out is the scene where sadness touches the mem- her memories, Riley's memories. Um, and so she sees everything through that lens of sadness, where looking back now, I see a lot of my fate through the lens of that OCD. And so it is confusing to untangle what was faith and what was scrupulosity and what was a kid just really wanting to be loved and follow the rules and hit all the marks. Um, So I hit all the marks. I was witnessing the kids on the playground. I was, you know, went to a Christian school that is probably, I've said this before, but where most of uh, the spiritual trauma that I think about came from. So I got saved a lot at my Christian school um, in chapel, even though, you know, I was definitely from the camp that once saved, always saved. But I was just never exactly sure that I was saved. Well, once saved, but never sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I ha- I'll never forget. I've said this before. I'll never forget the um, chapel speaker who said, if you are 99.9% sure that you're saved, then you are 100% lost. Awesome. Which, yeah. That's, that's very helpful. And how old were you? I, probably, I don't know, 13, 14. Awesome. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was. It was encouraging, yeah. as you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I was always willing. I was willing to, to make those sacrifices. I was willing to do the hard thing for Jesus that I needed to do. I went to a, something in North Carolina. They have a thing called Governor's School where kids get selected between their uh, sophomore and junior year in a specialty to go and do that specialty for six weeks during the summer at a college with other kids. And um, I got selected to go and be in the choral program for governor school. So I went, one of the songs that we were supposed to sing was Imagine, which, you know, is problematic (laughs) if you're an evangelical. Mm -hmm. And so instead of just kind of singing the song, I made it my mission that our choir should not sing Imagine. I stood up in front of these, I don't remember how many kids, a lot of kids, probably 50 kids in this choir, and basically preached about why I could not, um, I could not betray my Savior by singing these words. And this is pre, if I could only imagine. <laughs> Which you could right. have just swapped right have. in. So anyway, that's enough about me. <laughs> that's so you were very Christian. I, I did a good yeah. job. Which is one of the reasons I fell in love with you. And it is. Similar background for me growing up in an evangelical household. As early as I can remember being told about this alternate reality of the spiritual realm, uh, eternity, heaven and hell, it immediately clicked with me that that was the most important reality, that that was way more important than whatever we were doing in these meat bags, you know? And so I remember growing up, you know, in in the South, you're growing up in a very culturally Christian environment where pretty much everyone is going to church. But I would see my friends who called themselves Christians, went to church, but then when you spoke with them, it was, you were like, but this... But no, you don't think that Jesus is by far the most important thing? Like, this is way more important than everything else. It it never clicked with me that they had not placed their relationship with God above everything else. And that mentality sort of permeated every step of my childhood and, you know, youth group and then in high school starting a band. And of course, you know, my creative partner and business partner, best friend, Link, I've known him since 1984 in first grade. And so- Longer than you've known me. So he was there all along. So when we decided to start a band in high school, the Wax Paper Dogs, which was a, (laughs) I don't even know what the genre was, but it was not great. But of course it was gonna be a Christian band. And yes, we were going to invite our friends to the concerts. And yes, there was going to be an invitation after this pop, punk, rap, country Well, you said it was a Christian band, so the rest of that was redundant, but yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. But but you did not you did not use popular songs like The Wall and change the words no, in those we didn't popular do that. songs. We didn't do that. Which is what my Christian band did. So right. we we wanted to, we wanted to eventually sign with Tooth and Nail Records. That was a dream. Mm. So and then carry that into college getting involved with Campus Crusade for Christ and not just getting involved, but you know, you got to lead a Bible study, you got to lead the weekly meeting. And then when you, you graduate, discipling people. you got to go on staff with Campus Crusade. So for me, it wasn't about pleasing necessarily. It was this, I'm sure that was part of it, but it was more of this conviction that like, this is the most important reality. This is what I need to be investing myself into completely. And I need to find a woman who will do that with me. Yeah. Enter Jesse. <laughs> So before we, I think getting into your relationship and how that works, maybe take us to the rest of that story of, you know, what does your faith look like now? And and maybe what contributed yeah, to those did, shifts? how did it shift? Yeah. Like what happened? <laughs> um, Where did we go wrong? To, to ruin the fairy tale. The internet had something to do with it. Yeah, I I'll think. try to be concise. So uh, to me, the the way that I summarize this process is I encountered information that repeatedly challenged my assumption that the Bible was God's word, right? That the Bible was perfect. And that was a slow sort sort of erosion. Uh, you know, it's in general, it kind of started with exploring evolution. And, Which is what Ken Ham said would happen. Yeah, right. Ken yes. Ham was right. He's so right. Uh, it started with sort of a reframing of the Old Testament but then this kind of following this same logic ended up leading me to the New Testament and reconsidering what I knew about Jesus. Basically, over time, the Bible made, it went from, okay, the Bible is God's word. Yes, he, he used man to, okay, well, it's a mix of, of these two. two uh, this kind of just seems like it's just people. It just seems like people made this thing and that's, it, it clicks more for me when it's like, oh, this is just people like any other tradition trying to figure out, trying to explain why they feel the way they feel, why they're concerned about what happens after they die, giving them reasons to do good. And and this was like a, oh, this is this is over a decade of a process that took place mostly in, in North Carolina in a very, is still involved in the church, still leading a Bible study in, in wow. our church as all this mm-hmm. is sort of happening, mm-hmm. still talking about it with people that I'm close to, talking about it with my pastor, then in 2011, moving to Los Angeles, the devil's the devil's town, as I say, uh, <laughs> a song about when we're describing this. Uh, and I think, of course, the the story goes according, according to the internet. We moved to Los Angeles and we fell for the you know mm. the lights, camera, action, and Satan. But really, I think what moving to LA did do is, even though we, we immediately became best friends with the pastor of our church and got involved in the church as soon as we moved out here. What it did do is there was a less of a cultural pressure. And so it kind of, you were able to be like, okay, I'm have, I've been having all these doubts for 10 years or culminating into, uh, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore, but now I don't have the cultural pressure to remain that. And so I can kind of just consider this and that, w- and so I'd say about 2012, about 10 years ago, 2013 or so, is when I said, I don't think I can call myself a Christian anymore. And yeah, then Jesse can, Jesse we can the talk zoo. about how she was pro- processing we were at the that. the San Diego Zoo when you told me Oh, that. really? Mm-hmm. I was very angry at you. What section? <laughs> For a child's birthday. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that's good. I mean, that- It was probably the ape section, the evolution <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> that's my guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jesse, I, I think it would be great to hear. That's yeah. one of the things I'm interested in is those, those initial feelings and- how you were processing it, and where were you in your faith at the time, and how did that impact you? I mean, the initial feelings were um, abject terror, (laughs) desperation, fear. I guess that's the same as terror. Uh, (laughs) Anger. You know, I, I would lay on the bed and cry to God and ask God, where he was and why he had abandoned us. Mm. Can I ask before you go on, just because Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like Rhett, you were struggling with this for a long time. Had he brought you into that process or when when he said I'm not a Christian, that was the really the first you were hearing about it? No, he he absolutely and I will say like one of the things I really value about our relationship is I think honesty has always been really important to us. And I was telling Rhett 
that I feel the most myself around him. I feel the most authentic, like the mm. most authentic version of myself I feel around him. And I, I just feel really grateful that that has kind of always been the case, even with like my struggles with OCD before I even knew that that's act, that it had a name and that's what it was. You know, I would go to Rhett with these things and he wasn't a therapist. He didn't know, but he would laugh them off in a way that was actually really helpful because he wouldn't kind of enter into the madness with me. But I always felt like super authentic. And I had always struggled um, with my own doubts. So, you know, hell, man, hell was a problem for me. (laughs) But I didn't have a choice. Like, okay, I have to believe this. I'll never forget, you know, laying in my bedroom, just pouring over Romans 9 and really believing that I was going to figure out this whole predestination thing. And make sense of it. Because no one's tried that before. Right. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So you're going to just nail it, right? Okay. Yeah. But has, has anybody with my level of OCD tried it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Um, you know, and and my dad would come in and try to help, help me with it. And, you know, had very loving parents who talked to me, would do their best to work with me. Again, not knowing that what I had was OCD, that what was going on with me. But anyway, Rhett and I had always been honest about the doubts that we did have with each other, but we would encourage each other. So we had like little logical proofs that we would use to get us back to why the Bible is true. And depending on who was struggling at the time, you know, one or the other one would encourage. But the difference, I think, in us is that Rhett can sometimes be more in his head, and I'm, you know, more of a feeler. And so for him, he started reading this information, which I had, like, scratched the surface. But I wasn't going to, I didn't have the courage to go down the road. Also the patience, like he was reading all kinds of like textbooks about evolution and the Bible and historicity. And this, this one guy named Pete Enns. Yes. Uh, (laughs) That guy meant a lot when you read his work. I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) Or or, or you're welcome. I don't know what to say at this point. It's usually both. Yeah, it's just both. (laughs) Um, You know, and I, I didn't have that in me and it would have been too painful. And so I'm really like at the time him coming to me with these things when the first thing he came to me with was, hey, this evolution thing happened, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change what I think about Jesus. You know, and that alone was like earth shattering. Mm. Like I remember I was in the gym and I was walking up the steps of the gym and I was like, God, what are you doing? My husband believes in evolution. Because that was a a big deal in in your your family and your your You know, I was arguing with Bart Ehrman, not about evolution, about other things. And my geology professors at UNC, I was arguing with them about why, and they were so patient. I think back to how kind and patient they were with me, who knew nothing and was so convinced I knew everything. Uh, but anyway, so this process was painful, but it, on some level, deep down, it wasn't surprising, even though it was the most surprising thing ever, if that makes sense. Like I've said before, we were both so committed to Jesus. <laughs> Not just being Christians, we were committed to Jesus. So it was not like, oh, anybody would have seen this coming, especially us. Mm-hmm. But I think the f- the fear that began to creep in for both of us uh, as it relates to our relationship was, does this mean we're going to get divorced? Mm-hmm. Right? Because what we had been told by everyone and what we had told ourselves is that, okay, well, if, if you don't have Jesus, then you're just two sinful people on your own and there's no way you can manage this relationship because it's based on your commitment to Christ first. Mm-hmm. Well, and the difference also in where we were, obviously you were always several steps ahead of me or whether it's ahead or I don't want to make a value judgment, but you were at a different Closer place to the edge. Yes, than I was. And so, you know, there was fear that... He was headed down the highway to hell. 
And then I would go back to, but I know him. I know this person. And so it's this constant, like, can I trust you? Can I believe you? Do you have some nefarious desire that is pushing this? And every time I ask myself those questions, even subconsciously, the answer was always, he's just like reading books about science (laughs) and history. (laughs) And for a long time, wouldn't even touch those. Everything he was reading was the, the Christian side. Finally, when he got to this other side, he started, you know, he could not deny it. Mm-hmm. So just to read between the lines, and I, you can correct me, but what I'm hearing just from my background is the only reason that you would reject Christianity in the way that I was brought up was because you had a strong desire to go lead this like sinful guilt-free life of, you know, go drinking and orgies. And this is like, that's why. And it can't be like just intellectual honesty. It has to be this other pool. And so is that kind of the narrative? And that's what you were afraid of is like, can I trust is because a thousand percent. Can I trust that? A thousand percent. Okay. Well, one thing too, that I'm, that I'm hearing and something that Jared and I, we've talked about a lot here on the, on our other podcast on, on the podcast, which shall not be named <laughs> Bible for normal people is the emotional component of all this, because there is obviously, you know, right. An intellectual dimension, right. That, that was your way of processing this, but you had emotions with that as well. And Jesse, you obviously have emotions with, with this too. And that's the part that's not talked about very often. It's like, what, what's your argument? It's like, no, there's a whole emotional thing that's happening too. And that's so deep at the core of what it means to be human, to have these emotional experiences. And and we don't always talk about it and we don't value them right? because your emotions just get in the way of reason. Well, that's nonsense. That doesn't, right. We don't work that way. We're not bifurcated people. Yeah. So with that, I mean, can you maybe walk us through, because I would imagine that those feelings evolved and developed and went up and down and changed through that time as you both, again, probably feeling your own emotions and fears about your own shifts. But then what does that mean for our relationship? So you kind of started, Jesse, with fear. What? How did it evolve after that? I think I started going to therapy. This was after we had moved to L.A. And Rhett was already at this point saying, telling me, not many other people, but telling me and Link and close people that he was could no longer call himself a Christian. And uh, I started going to therapy. I thought it was because my kid needed it. Um, and my therapist, unfortunately, let me know that it was me <laughs> who needed it. And I needed a session and a half because I'm a talker. <laughs> so that, you know, at that point, I really... I didn't know. I didn't know I was going for spiritual trauma. I didn't know I was going to deal with this OCD stuff. You know, I thought my kid was tough. <laughs> and my kid it laughs when I tell this story. So I, I don't feel like I'm divulging anything that he would be horrified by. <laughs> so I think one of the things that I kept having to come back to in therapy was this letting go. Um, which is like so simple and so cliche and like one of the few things in my life that feels like that works when things are hard (laughs) is letting go. And I think this whole process for me, especially as somebody who did have OCD, had this level of like I was going to perform, I was going to achieve, even if that was like being the best homeschool mom I could be or whatever, because I did that for a while. And so letting go of all of my ideas of what our marriage would look like, of what my parenting would look like, of what it meant, you know, all of those uh, and all the things that I thought were good. I spent my life thinking these were good ideals, but they're not real. And so really having to come to terms with everything is as it should be, whether that's whatever my husband's beliefs are, whatever mine are, whatever's happening with my kids, that it's okay. It's going to be okay. Really simple, but that has been very helpful for me. Simple, but hard. I mean, it's huge to get to that point, I think. And Rhett, did you have similar, I mean, not knowing the history of 
you and, and Link and your channel and where you were with your career and popularity was some of the reason you held back from sharing that. Did you have some fears about the fallout? Again, something that isn't often talked about is how much you lose when your faith shifts, like you lose those ideals or the future you thought of your marriage and your parenting. And for you, maybe your career, yeah, what, what was what was that like for you? You know, we had... The, I've been doing this internet thing for so long that I've sort of witnessed the a, a shift in the level of vulnerability that comes with being a creator. So getting started in you know 2006, 2007, in those early days, it was very much about, I have this thing that I am creating that I want you to enjoy. It's not about a connection with me. This is before anyone understood what social media was going to become. And over time, it evolved to this, oh, this is about people connecting with me and Link and Link and I connecting with each other and people feeling like they're a part of this friendship. And yes, they're into the things that we're creating, but they're also into us just being ourselves. And so I think that we ended up disclosing more about ourselves, not in a, hey, come along family vlog type thing, but just through our podcast. And so we were, we, you know, early days of our podcast was, it was an interview show where we would, it was sort of the WTF of the internet world where we would just bring on a content creator and ask them all these questions. And we got very personal and we kind of prided ourselves on asking them questions about their background. And we're asking them about their religion. We're literally asking them about their religious background and their family of origin and never having really talked about it ourselves. So there were several years where it was like, there's this giant piece of us that really defines who we are and frankly is why we do what we did. And we only got into comedy through ministry, you know, and there's this weird disjointed story of, you know, what we would just gloss it over and say, we were engineers and then we became YouTubers, but no, we were missionaries with Campus Crusade. And then it is a very crazy path. So to me, there was this this pressure to, to, to finally be like, I feel like I have to put my whole self out there. But there was a lot of fear because we had never been like, you know, our content is very apolitical and anyone can enjoy it. And we had a sense of how divisive this might be. We did not anticipate just how much it would, you know, the people back home would what they would say and what they would say to our parents. I, I didn't really think a lot of that through. Well, we were in denial. Yeah. But yeah. But that for, for me, you know, that that was actually a big part of it as I think about what was happening because, you know, I'm not as much of a maybe a general people pleaser, but we were very performance based household and my parents were you know, who I still have a great relationship with them, were all always very much like, you know, you kinda you, you saw the things that they rewarded you for. You do well at sports, you do well in school. You can get up in front of a group of people and make them laugh. Like there's lots of things that we kind of respected in our family. And then when I sort of come out and of course I had told them a a few years before, which was hugely disappointing. But I think that when I became this face of deconstruction or deconversion in this, in this space, this YouTube space, there's this weird thing that started. And I was, and I'm going in therapy. I've been in therapy about five years, but. I was beginning to process the way that my personality, the personality that I had kind of constructed because of my family of origin, which was so based on being good at a lot of things and finding my identity in that. I'm Enneagram 3, might not surprise you. (laughs) But I had to sort of reckon with the fact that in this area that is ultimately the thing that my parents care about more than anything, regardless of how successful I get in this entertainment space, which they are very proud of, there's this like glaring disappointment Mm-hmm. which, you know, that happening publicly while I'm beginning to sort of deconstruct my own personality and what it is that makes me who I am, that has been, and this is all pretty recent because it was 2020 when we, we told that story. And that's when I'm kind of getting into the good stuff of therapy of really understanding how much my personality is based on this performance approach. I think that's important. And maybe you can say a little bit more, maybe for both of you is... I think sometimes we underestimate, we, we think of faith shift as this one piece that we can sort of isolate. But I think once we pull on that thread, we see 
all these other parts of us, you know, Jesse, I heard you with your OCD and Rhett, like performance, those were so deeply integrated into your faith expression right. that they sort of blur together. What have been some of those other things that you've been maybe surprised to learn that as your faith shifted, these other parts of your life have shifted? I mean, I think a huge one for most women coming out of evangelicalism is just what it means to be a woman in the church. And for me, I had to go through like a really angry phase that lasted a few years. Um, <laughs> it's over? <laughs> hearty <laughs> All right. Maybe it doesn't need to be over. Um, yeah, my therapist would say... At, when he he thinks I'm through it, FYI, <laughs> um, he's like, you know, yeah, Jesse, you kind of raged there for a few years. I was like, rage? Really? I, I had no. But yes, I do think realizing that this was never, I, this was not said explicitly. And I think that's the hard thing because a lot of this, you know, even the work stuff, it's like even the performance stuff, somebody would say, well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not, you know, the Bible says it's by grace through faith. And yet you can't deny what the culture says, which is it's really important that you not F things up. And like, you might not even be saved. Like nobody's, I mean, I guess I did have that chapel speaker explicitly say that, but like there are so many double messages and there's so much cognitive dissonance. And I do think that that really contributed to just a lot of the mental anguish that I experienced. I just kept trying to make it make sense. You know, along those lines, it was this idea that, no, yes, you and your husband are both equal under God, you know, as servants of the Lord, whatever. But he's the one who's in charge. Yeah, but in another way, it's, right. it doesn't work that way. But at all. also, right, yeah. your whole identity is kind of your husband and your kids. And like that sets women up. You know, I was a homeschool mom. While my husband was out getting famous, I was at home homeschooling the kids. Now, I will say Rhett never, he always thought the homeschool thing was kind of overboard. He was always like, are you sure you want to do this? This seems odd and like hard. <laughs> but I was convinced that that was the best for my kids. And, you know, that and this is something we've worked so much in in therapy is that idea that I have my own identity. And like, it doesn't mean that being a wife and a mother is not a huge, huge part of my identity. But it sets us all up for failure if all of my hopes and dreams are tied on my relationship to my husband and my relationship to my kids. If my kids mess up, what does that say about me as a mother if that's my whole identity? Yeah, if, if the outcome is wrong, exactly. then you've failed. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so not only does that set me up for pain, it sets them up to be the recipients of all my projections. Oh, gosh, yeah. And so that's something I'm continuing to work on is what it means to be a person, my own person. Not that these relationships aren't a huge part of that, but if we're talking Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram too. So relationally, relationships are a huge part of how I relate to the world, how I see myself in the world. So what does it mean for me to be a person apart from all of my relationships? I mean, the shame of it all is that self-discovery is not really encouraged in many Christian contexts. And um, I think you have to know yourself. You, you have to know what makes you tick. And yeah. Any, anything that's that's contrary to that is more, not to overstate, It's it, it gets a little cultish, you know, it gets a little mind controlly, you know, where you simply can't discover who you are. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a great point. This is actually where, where I was going to go, I think, in terms of one of the things that has been huge for me through this process is the, and again, this... <laughs> I'm always very the the old ret is always present and sitting on my shoulder judging the the things that the new ret is saying. So I can see. I, well, we're judging you right now. <laughs> so go right ahead. So I'm playing right into the narrative that I have become my own god. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that I have found it much more beneficial personally to spend less time trying to figure out God and to spend more time figuring out me. And and I think that. 
there is such a one size fits all approach to our background in particular. And even when you think about campus ministry coming up through Campus Crusade and you go to the conference and you know they divide the men and the women up and it's like, this is the men's message, this is the women's message. So it's not really one size fits all, it's one size fits men and one size fits women. And you never get into the like, well, what is it about me and my my personality and the things that the way that I see the world that is interpreted that changes the way I interpret God and we never talked about these individual characteristics that have such an influence on the way that we see things and the way that we approach faith. It was always like, okay, well, this is generally how all you guys should be living and approaching this and thinking about that. And it wasn't until I got out of that environment and got into therapy that I, I started to think about things on that level and, and actually began to see see some progress. And, and I think one of the things that happened as it relates to us is this fear of the unknown and what our relationship would turn into apart from a commitment to Christ turned into this, okay, well, what is there? What do we have? And then we started realizing that we had a commitment to each other that was the baseline that I think was there all along. I think we were trying to explain it with some colorful religious language. But then when we started realizing, oh, I actually like you. I like being with you. I like doing life with you. And that might be enough. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, but it might be that that awareness might have been masked or prevented from even happening if you're in a religious context where you're not encouraged to think about who am I, what makes me tick. Yeah. Right. And that's that. I mean, I just, I always find that to be a big shame. I think when church does that and they tend to do that, it's, it's, um, it's dehumanizing. It's also interesting what you said, Jesse, I think you're the one that said it. There's this coded language in fundamentalist evangelicalism where it's almost like you have to have this hyper social awareness to know when to actually take things seriously and literally and when not to, (laughs) because if you don't have that and you just take everything seriously, because I'm someone who just takes things seriously. And so whenever I would uh, come across something like there's a number of people in the church who just wouldn't take it seriously because somehow they knew that that's like coded like, like, well, we don't really do that. We don't take that seriously. It's like, well, how am I supposed to know what? And I just think it's oh. interesting in, in terms of your relationship. That was one of those things that it almost worked to the, it worked to a, an ironic advantage where kind of the code was like the real thing is that you're committed to each other and you're connected and you like each other. But we had to sort of code it with Christ, we, our commitment to Christ, that's the thing that holds us together. And then when you don't have that, you're kind of like, oh, wait, maybe all along we just connected and committed to each other and we actually like each other. And But it, it just highlights this coded, everything was so coded. Like looking back, it's it's a world that was so confusing. And that's why I find, I've seen so many examples of this. And, and I think you you both are this way from what I'm hearing is the people who take it most seriously are the people who end up transitioning out because they didn't get those messages that those like very slight coded messages of no, we, whenever we say like sacrifice, we don't like literally mean to like sacrifice. That would be absurd. It's like, well, no, no one told me I actually did sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I went through a f- several months of deep inner turmoil over whether or not I should wear a head covering. <laughs> now, nobody in my family like this would everybody in my family would be horrified if I showed up with it. This is not what I come from. Mm-hmm. But, but it's I was just going to be a baseball hat, which is weird. <laughs> But I ran into women at Walmart in head Mm -hmm. coverings and occasionally, you know, or women who didn't wear makeup and didn't clearly that's not me, but maybe it should be. So I 100 percent like that. Yes, I would. I I was wondering how everybody knew that, like, why aren't we still wearing head coverings? Because it says so. Right. I know you've got all these explanations, but like, wait, so the men and women thing, that's that is true. But this is kind of something we can. Yeah. Well, this is Mm -hmm. over generalization, but I, I I find that most of the people that I knew in high school who were deeply committed and took it so seriously 
tend to have deconstructed to some degree. Mm-hmm. And it's all the people that I went to school with that were just those very surface level cultural Christians who they graduated, had kids, and they're in deep now. It's like, it's, you know, it's like there tends to be this crisscross um, just depending on your disposition. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we're looking at uh, coming to the end of our time, and I wanted to have a chance to have you articulate what does it look like now for you? Mm-hmm. In your faith, like in your your spirituality, your faith, however you would articulate that, and how has that, what I want to say is manifested, but that's a weird word to use, in your relationship? Like, how does that express itself in your relationship now? Like, do you have quiet time two times a day or three times a day? How does that work for you guys? Yeah, once together and once separate. Okay. (laughs) I think for me, I would say I am the most at peace more at peace than I've ever been. And it's strange because I always heard that it would be the opposite. And I I feel God's presence. I don't have a definition for that in the way that I used to. And I'm really cool not having a definition for that. And the unknowing is the most beautiful, wonderful, like luscious, peaceful thing I've ever experienced. And it's really uncomfortable at first, just like with, you know, some OCD cognitive behavioral tactics where exposure therapy, it's so uncomfortable at first. And then it's so helpful and beautiful and life changing. And so I for me, I just am so happy to be curious. And I don't like the level of fear is much reduced I just, I mean, things are going to happen and I don't have control over them and I'm going to mess up. My kids are going to mess up. Me and Rhett are going to fight. I'm going to have angry years. Um, We're not going to do it perfectly, but I. You don't have to. Right. And, And we actually don't have to. I think I used to would have said I didn't have to and not really meant it. So I, I think this like wonder of the present, which again, sounds so cliche, but being able to say, hey, I'm listening to this podcast. What do you think about or or a book we're listening to that is wild and we're both like, this could be true or it could not. I don't know. Hmm. What do you think? Which would have been so dangerous. Like that was not okay. You can't, everything is in a box before you even know anything about it. So rather than the unknowing creating fear, it actually generates life and curiosity. Yeah. Exactly. Not, not bad for an OCD person <laughs> to get She's to that a long point. Way. Yeah, a long yeah way. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking about this uh, quite a bit lately in terms of like what faith do I have, right? And I'm gonna, uh, you guys correct me if I'm wrong in, the, in the, the quoting of this verse in Hebrews, the definition of faith. Is it the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen? Is that some, that's one translation. Close enough. We don't read the Bible. But <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm sure that in the context, the writer of Hebrews saying things hoped for was probably talking about things that would come to pass and Jesus returning and whatever. But I think that in the, I do think that things hoped for I think that's sort of the modern day understanding of faith, meaning that it's kind of the things that you want to be true, right? I, I think in a lot of ways, I still love reading about all this apologetics and you know people arguing about the historicity of the resurrection. I, it's sort of my hobby to continue. He watches these <laughs> YouTube videos while we're working out in the morning. That's what he's watching <laughs> in our home gym in the garage. And, and, you know, if you take something like the resurrection, okay, take that as, as an example. And, of course, there's really smart people who can, who know a whole lot more about this subject than me, who can make very good arguments, very, very cohesive arguments, right, on either side of this issue. But at the end of the day, you kind of get down to this point where, what do you want to be true, <laughs> right? Like, if you want Jesus to have risen from the dead— there's a cohesive argument that can be made that this is the best explanation of the early church or, or whatever. There's also, an, a, a, you know, that you could also say, yeah, probably not. <laughs> you know, it's like you can, you can kind of, and really smart people with a lot of convictions can get down to that. But so, so I, I asked myself like, well, what do I want to be true? 
at this point in my life. And I think that this is where there's a lot of connection between the two of us. It's much less defined and it's not dogmatic and it's not written in a book somewhere. But I think we kind of want the nature of the world. We, we have a lot of similarities in alignment and what I think we generally want the nature of the world to be. And I would say that the sense of wonder, you know, I'm not a materialist. I am sort of in practice, but that's not what I want to be the end all. Uh, you know, I don't want that to be the nature of the world. Like we want there to be something more. Some magic. And I, and I think that we, we look for that together. And I think that that kind of defines the ongoing sort of journey that we have together. Yeah, the connection isn't so much a list of facts that we agree on, but our mode of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's I, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great vision for us to to end on. Thank you so much for talking about things that, I mean, I'm not good at vulnerability, so even you talking about it makes me like <laughs> ugh, squirm. So this is good. This is good. It's good practice for me. Um, but thank you so much for for jumping on and having a conversation with us. Thank you for asking us. It was really fun to get to talk to y'all. Same here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was me. wonderful. Thank you for being here. I picked up on it first thing. You weren't like the ones I'd known. Might have been from the same place But coming from somewhere all your own A few hours on a wooden bench That's all it took to do me in Knew then had to make it quick Before I made us fall into sin Said I don't know where we're going But I As long as you're there, that's where I want to be Talking took a different tone Started to make you cry What if there's no way for us to know What happens when we die The blur from those tears faded
for quiet time with Pete and Jared. Well, folks, welcome to a new segment on the podcast, which is going to be called quiet time with Pete and Jared, because that's what we do here. Yeah. We like to be quiet. And have time. And time. Yeah. (laughs) But what we want to do is just engage what we just heard in this Faith for Normal People podcast and how, you know, we're processing some of these right. things because a lot of stuff came up today that I think, you know, Jared and I both resonate with and and how we're also on this sort of quest for seeking and for understanding and for being curious and things like well, that. And if you're used to listening to Bible for Normal People, there is a sense in which in that podcast, you know, Pete, you and I come at it more from an an expert point of view. Like we we have taught some of these things. Mm-hmm. These aren't really new concepts to us, but in faith for normal people, it's an opportunity for us to kind of real time process and talk about kind of where we are with because we these don't things. know what's going on. We don't with faith. at this point. We don't know. <laughs> no, but I, I think in, and it's an opportunity for us to maybe get a little more personal and talk about things that's going on with us right. around faith and the questions we have. Right. And so, and and faith is that. It's it's like the so what question, right. you know. You you can you can assess as we do the biblical text and talk about it, and we get sort of excited about that. It's it's it gives me a lot of energy. But at the end of the day, it really is a so what question, mm-hmm. and that's a much bigger question than what does this verse say, right? right? It's it's many many more things involved in that. And this, you know, what we heard with with this episode today with uh, Rhett, Rhett and, and, Jesse. and Jesse, it was really uh, yeah uh, helpful. I and think. what what struck out for me? What struck out struck, in yeah, baseball mode? Struck, I know. <laughs> what stuck out <laughs> for me was again, I, I think a little bit of a sadness around this arrested development that can happen when you you mentioned at some point in the episode that it's it's a shame that a lot of Christian uh, teaching has us say, it's not about us, right? That's the first line of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. It's not about you. And it, ironically, because I've been reading that book again, the rest of the book is kind of talking about how it is about you. So it's kind of funny. But it creates this arrested development where we, you know, I think the normal way to develop as a human is to be introspective and to think about what you like and what you don't like and what brings you joy and what brings you sadness. And I feel like too much Christian teaching shortcuts that mm-hmm. and it, it short circuits it where I can be a 27 year old and not really done any of that work yet mm-hmm. because I was told not to look at myself. In, not in the iterations of Christianity that we may have been familiar with. And yeah. Yeah. Have. Sorry. When I say Christian, I'm thinking of more fundamentalist evangelical Christian teaching right? and how that it's, it's sad to me, the arrested development that can happen. It's most of my personal growth happened when I got real honest uh, because it's this double whammy where we're not only we told not to focus on ourselves, but we're also rewarded to pretend we're better than we are. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's this right. double whammy where we're not doing the work. The work we're doing is to keep up a facade and to keep looking good, which is tiring. It's tiring, it's and it's tiring. not actually productive because we're not working. It's to be a better person. We're working to make sure well, everyone not, sees. Well, you us. can't be a better person, Jared. What do you mean? We can't be better people because we're sinful. Mm, right. Well, and we have to forget about all that stuff and just give our lives over. But, right. you know, I, and, and we've, and this is not, I'm, I'm not offering a solution because this is stuff that, you know, I really, man, if you people can get inside my head, the stuff that I think about all the time, it's with my OCD, especially, but something Jared, you and I have talked about mentioned several times is John Calvin, who's not everybody's hero. He's not particularly mine either, but he wasn't an idiot. Right. And and the opening line in his magnum opus called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he basically, his starting point is you can't know God without knowing yourself. And conversely, he says you can't know yourself without knowing God, but it's two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And I think that much of modern Protestantism that we're engaged with has forgotten half of that equation. Like knowing yourself well, you're what else, you're a sinner. What else do you have to know? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's 
letting that roll off my back over years where like, you know, Jesse was saying curiosity and not knowing is, I mean, I'm, I'm with her. It's extremely liberating for me, maybe because we have similar processes with, you know, OCD or whatever, but you know, I, I hear the journey that they're on and the, and, and it's similar to, I think, how we have processed things and had to process things yeah. and being honest with ourselves and with, with let's say facts or the data, as far as they can tell us without being materialists, which, you know, Rhett says he's not a, another, another right. lie. So can I ask you uh, just because I don't know if other episodes will have an opportunity, maybe I'll ask you a personal question. How do you feel like your OCD and faith expressions intermix? Cause I don't think I haven't heard you talk about it in terms of scrupulosity, but I'm sure it had an impact. Yeah, I'm not sure if scrupulosity was more my issue as much as just I can't shut the head off at all. Mm-hmm. It, and in the middle of the night, waking up, like sleeping two and a half hours, getting up for two hours, and then going to sleep, hopefully after that. That's more for me. And what my – again, I, I hate to use the word journey because it's so cliche, but it, it is – that's been a meaningful word for me. That's a good metaphor. I'm on a path, and I am. And it's – learning to to embrace the mystery and the curiosity, all the things my OCD doesn't want me to embrace is mm-hmm. now like, it's actually normal now, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, and, you know, to what extent my OCD is, is, is manifest, that's, you know, you can ask other people, but I feel better. Mm-hmm. I actually feel more at peace saying, I have no idea what God is up to. And I don't even know if I want to know because I can't find my car keys right now and I have to get someplace, you know, I just, or I'm trying to be a good person, you know, to the people, love the people around me. And, and those are the things that occupy my thinking more and not being obsessed about how does it all work? Which for me was a a function of control. And so being an, I, I learned this when at the time I, I quit one of my programs, my academic programs. And uh, my wife at the time said, that was like the most proud of me she's ever been. Mm. And I think it's because she recognized like that was not a healthy space for me to be someone who is prone to needing to know things as an element of my need to control things. Mm -hmm. That was a really unhealthy space just to be around other people who praised and lauded and everything was geared toward knowing more who who supported your dysfunction. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Celebrated my dysfunction, which just what you said, you know, uh, sparked that thought of, yeah, once I got away from that, I started to see that my life, I wanted it to be more oriented toward loving. And for me, a big mantra has been, you can't love and control at the same time. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so I, that was not a great environment that would have been conducive to learning to love better because it really, it encouraged control, at least in the form that I was used to it, which was through knowledge. I had to know as much about the world. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, a lot of my Christianity was driven by like, well, if I need to be in control and know as much as I can, what's better than knowing everything about God? I mean, right. that's like the highest order. Well, does it get right to it? I mean, right. you know, right? exactly. So, and it, I went to, speaking of that, I, I went to seminary and then to graduate school after that because I wanted to know. And the thing is, there's, there's a way in which that's a good thing. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with Inherently, that. Inherently, right. But <laughs> it was many, many, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, probably within the last 10, 12 years, when I've really come into touch with how, uh, I I think I know why I was driven to do that. And the control issue Mm -hmm. is very big with me. Right. You know, I want to control everything. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to control you right now, Jared. Right. And I am. I th- am I controlling? No. <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah, t- telepathically. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, control is an illusion. And, and that's learning that too. But the unknowing, the curiosity, uh, and mystery is another big word. All those things come together for me where I'm like, you know, and I, and I like, like Jesse was saying, I feel, let me put this, I feel God's presence at times. And I don't try to think about it. You know what I mean, I don't know. I just let it be, and just I don't have to categorize. By, it bypass the function of control that you're used to, which, which is the, that cognitive, which process. is the cognitive thing, and yep. that's not to get in the left right brain thing because that's all. Not, Another episode, maybe. Well, yeah, and that's actually you know people don't think there's a left right distinction. Right, it's, right. it's not a hard distinction anymore, yep. but still, just you know what I mean. That um, it's I think a lot of my journey of faith has been learning to honor my head. 
and resist living in it because that's ego control and all that kind of stuff. So, and knowledge can do that. It actually can disrupt your quest for knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. That happened in graduate school too, yep. because it's like every question that you try to answer has 10 different answers and any answer you have is going to elicit 10 more questions. So this is a bottomless pit. Now, for me, it's fun. It's curiosity. It's like, I get to think about these things and I don't have to be, in fact, I know I'm wrong about a lot. I just don't know what I'm wrong about. Right. Exactly. Excellent. Well, that was a good quiet time. Yeah, it was a quiet time. It was. With Pete and Jared. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schell. You guys have a complicated setup, which is good. <laughs> we're just like, press the button. and Yeah, we were just critiquing ourselves based on the videos we were watching of y'all earlier. We we're like, well, they got cameras set up here and it's like going back. Well, see, here's the thing, though. Once you, eh, this happened a few years ago, but things got to a point where I can no longer, I, I cannot do anything. Like right. it, they they passed mm-hmm. a level of complication where I I could not operate anything in our studio. It anymore. was irreducibly complex. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. <laughs> and therefore proof of God. Is that yeah, where you're right, going exactly, with this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Just, okay. You see where I'm going. Okay.